This podcast was brought to you by One Bite at a Time. Reduce toxic exposure and eat the world you want by Sarah Lance and Tabitha McIntosh. Joining me in the studio is Tabitha McIntosh. Tabitha is an experienced and respected naturopath, clinical nutritionist and educator. After attaining her Bachelor of Medical Science degree at University of New South Wales in 2001, she went on to pursue her passion for integrative healthcare by completing an advanced diploma in naturopathy and diploma in nutrition in 2005. Absolutely passionate about improving the health of everyone she comes in contact with, Tabitha's impressive resume includes presenting at conferences and professional development seminars around Australia, lecturing in nutrition at both Nature Care College and previously Endeavour College of Natural Health, the international community health work, and contributing to publications and natural medicine textbooks, such as Clinical Naturopathic Medicine, the second edition, on topics such as paediatric nutrition and environmental medicine. And indeed, that's what we'll be talking about today with her new book, hers and Dr. Sarah Lance, and that is One Bite at a Time, Reducing Toxic Exposure and Eat the World You Want. Welcome so warmly to FX Medicine, Tabitha. How are you? Thank you so much, Andrew. I'm really well, and it's really special to be here on this end of the podcast. Usually I've got the earphones as I'm doing my exercise, (laughs) listening to all your other fabulous interviewees. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I've got to say I'm so thrilled to have you in because I have to tell our listeners about this. This book is unique. This book is something I have yearned to see in the naturopathic community. It is such an incredible publication. You guys have obviously obviously spent a heck of a lot of time on this. Tell me about the story about where it began first, I think. Absolutely. So I remember being at a health retreat. I gave gifted myself a trip to Guingana oh, yeah. when I stopped breastfeeding my second child. So he was about 16, 17 months old and I finally had my body back after goodness knows how many years, two kids and all that breastfeeding. And I stumbled across Sarah Lanz's first book. She'd published that in 2009, Chemical Free Kids, and couldn't get my eyes off it. Like it just called to me, had to have it. And that was, it called to me as a mother, obviously, but it called to me also as a clinician. And I knew that I would be learning bucket loads from her and and that I did. And I was so moved by um, the way that she spoke and the content of her book and how I could actually take some of the concepts in that book and apply them mm. immediately. Um, I was so moved that I got in touch with her. Sarah, Sarah and I have a bit of a link in that we both um, did some growing up in Orange, New yes. South Wales. <laughs> I heard her podcast. I know. That was that was fabulous to learn. Yeah. Um, Good people come from Orange, obviously. Yeah, yeah, allegedly. But <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, you've moved on from there and you've done a heck of a lot, lot of research on the environment yourself following on from Sarah Lance, why? Well, you know, I guess my my postgraduate studies were in environmental medicine and I learned an enormous amount from my lecturers. I studied by correspondence through Swinburne Uni and Uh that school is now closed down. But 
it just, you know, I've always been mesmerised by the miraculous workings of the human body. And obviously clinical nutrition was my first love. But then in understanding the impact that particular environmental um, exposures could have on whether it be our hormone expression or particularly our development. And look, the calling to this for me was I'm sure because I was a mother and around about the same time as reading Sarah's book, uh, you know, the TED Talks, I stumbled across Mm. one of the best TED Talks um, called My Toxic Baby. And Penelope Jagasser, I'm sure we can include the link at the end of the podcast. Penelope Jagasser said something really outstanding uh, as a quote at the end of her um, TED Talk. It really shows how sometimes it's only a parent's awareness that stands between mm. their own children and chemicals. And to me, that was like a penny dropping. The Guardian. Ever so loudly that I thought it, it was so motivating to me. And I just, I'd already been doing a great deal of work in um, preconception care and uh, pregnancy care and had even done some national uh, lecture series on topics such as that, but hadn't really delved into the way that the environment can impact development all the way, you know, all the way throughout gestation and obviously postpartum as well. Now, look, way back in, what is it, was it the 70s? I think it was the late 60s where there was, Mm. um, what was it, Silent Spring? Mm. That was the first awakening to, holy hell, what are we doing to our earth, to this planet? And then there was a lot of shuffling under the carpet. There was a lot of, no, of course, there's no problem. We're fine. We have the EPA. You know, we have the government looking after you and we're being nice to you and it's okay, everybody. There's not a problem. And then around about 10 years ago, there was all of these papers springing up, even on PubMed going, hey, guys, there's a bit of a canary here. There's a problem brewing. How did we get here? The, the pollution in newborns uh, that was pub- published by the Environmental Working Group, July 2005, was astonishing. And it showed not only, well, it was just proof really that infants and babies are so intimately connected mm. with their environment, whether mm. their environment be initially their mother as they're developing and then their immediate environment. But this paper showed that newborns were born with over 200 different chemicals coursing through their veins, actually before they'd even taken their first breath. So that sort of astonished, that, that's just extremely motivating, really. I've, I've got to ask the sort of devil's advocate question, because there would be those out there that would say, so, so what? We, we you know, uh, our liver cells actually respond to poisons and indeed um, sometimes that induces initiation of detoxification and that's necessarily a good thing. For instance, my tequila intake. Um, <laughs> you know, so so I guess where I flow on from there is well, that might be some that might be relevant for somebody who's perfectly healthy and has no disease process. But we're talking about newborns here that are undergoing rapid neurodevelopment. Tell me about the effects. Tell me about what are some of the issues that we're seeing now. Well, this is a really big one of our challenges. So the developmental, the, the exquisite paediatric vulnerability because of the fact that they are developmentally vulnerable, you know, the, the complexity of brain development and brain cell migration and even just new brain cell growth uh, in that that occurs all the way throughout gestation, but particularly in that first trimester, sometimes even before a woman knows she's pregnant, these processes are absolutely in process already. Mm, absolutely. And when we look at a an infant baby boy in utero, you know, to think that his testes structurally are 
formed by 14 weeks gestation and to to then logically just put together the fact that that mum may be being exposed to environmental um, contaminants that are endocrine disrupting chemicals, in particularly oestrogen mimicking chemicals, is a, a real concern. How do you then shake the tree? How do you then wake people up, you know, these people that are just burying their head in the sand saying there isn't an issue? When I remember reading or hearing about, um, uh, was it frogs? I think it was in mm. the Dane tree. That's right. Now, this is the Dane tree, for God's sake. We're not talking about Mount Isa, mm. yet we're seeing toxic issues there. Mm. How then do you try and wake them up? We're doing this to our kids in Sydney and Melbourne and, you know, even Mount Isa, for instance. It's a really real daily issue. So not only do we have these environmental chemicals that are in our environment and they've been there for years and and we measure their, you know, half-life in decades, we've also got, like you said with tequila, our toxins of choice, and then the toxins (laughs) that we're exposed to um, daily without thinking critically about it. And, yes, you know, uh, chemicals like atrazine and insecticides like uh, chlorpyrifos are in the water. Absolutely. And they are having impacts on, uh, you know, the gene expression on phenotype where, and all the way from our wildlife through to uh, humans. So I've got to ask the next question there is that, you know, when you start to look, you know, you think, oh, well, the Australian government will have data on just how toxic the place is. Crickets. very little work and you have to look on more sort of building guidelines um Mm. you know building codes for instance on how to avoid pesticides where where the appropriate use of you know termicides are for Mm. instance and how you're supposed to handle them farming agricultural sites Mm. and journals with regards to handling of pesticides and herbicides herbicides for the farmers but don't worry about how that grain gets into bread and therefore is eaten by children. So there's all of this sort of, I know it's not over there, it's only over here. There's so many ways we can talk about this topic. And when we talk about this topic with fear, you know, mongering, it does encourage people to remain blissfully ignorant and they keep their head in the sand. So, you know, the the one bite at a time heading for the book is because this topic is so enormous and and almost too big for the day-to-day clinician out there seeing her patients or seeing his patients because there's so many things to cover in that initial right. Uh, a case taking, you know, session where you're gathering as much information as you can. And I think there was a case for me many, many years ago to be a decade ago where I was working with a lovely couple and they already had a four-year-old, but they'd been trying for the last two and a half years to conceive their second child. Mm -hmm. And I caught them at that, you know, at that time where they were feeling subfertile and they'd been running into all of these challenges. And I took a really comprehensive case history and something had changed and they had moved on to the family's orange farm. Oh, really? And uh, he had taken over his father's property yep. and he was spraying the oranges and his, you know, boots were getting left at the front door and his clothes were going through the same wash cycle as the family's, you know, dirty washing. And it sparked my interest after the reading that I'd been doing. Mm. And sure enough, on doing a semen analysis, there were zero percent normal, uh, morphologically normal sperm. And the DNA fragmentation was extremely high. And to be able to show him those numbers and to then, you know, three, four months later to repeat the same analysis and see the significant change and, and to know now that they have a second child, a daughter who's three, four, five, is just so empowering. Yeah. So that to me is the proof in the pudding. That, that to me is 
it, it really is where it meets the road sort of mm-hmm. thing. It's like, okay, you change this and then the naysayers will say, well, big deal, what are you going to do about it? You did something about it and you got a result. Within what per- what time period? Uh, well, we did the repeat semen analysis four months later. Four months. And it wasn't long after that that wow. she was expecting um, second child and, you know, it successful pregnancy, beautiful little family. And they, you know, that was a real eye opener for them too. There are a lot of clients that love seeing the numbers and uh, it can often feel like hard work Mm, doing, mm. putting the effort in and doing the preconception work. But when you see the black and white difference like that, it's extremely empowering. So I've got to say then you spoke about clinicians using this book. Is it for clinicians only? Absolutely not. We essentially, we wrote it for the public, but... I am finding that the book has been so well received by clinicians and health food stores and there are quite a number of clinics that have decided to stock it themselves Mm. because, and and we just want our message to get far and wide because clinicians are our advocates and the way that Sarah and I wrote this book was with the intention of, you know, using it as a resource ourselves Mm. and we approached it from the perspective of what what do we wish was out there already? And, you know, there's so much, only so much you can cover in an appointment and we've got all of our handouts, but how can we pull this together to be a really comprehensive and entertaining read at the same time that gives you the the strategies? And in, in one of the last chapters, I think it's chapter nine, we've called it a call to our tribe. And we don't, oh, our nice. tribe doesn't have to just be clinicians and our fellow clinicians. You know, we're speaking on behalf of other clinicians who, who, who have some good insight into a lot of these topics already, but a call to our tribe because we feel that when you are making these decisions to maybe go against some, you know, some dominant societal expectations and and habits, you have to have the courage and you have to feel supported by your community around you. Um, So, you you know, I'm so glad you mentioned that because one of the things that my father-in-law did, he he lives with us. And um, one of the things that he did last year was he thought, hang it, he can't go up the hill now. He's, he is getting on in in, in his years. Um, but he thought, hang it, I am not can't go up the hill. I am going to make a garden out on the nature strip. And it was a little bit of belligerence <laughs> on his part. Mm. But what he said was, well, if it can't be for us, let it be for the community. And so there's this little community garden in the front of our place now that we get some neighbours coming out and, you know, and then they sort of you know, do a little bit of tending, probably a little bit more pilfering than, than <laughs> tending. But, but the thing is that there's now these awesome tomatoes. Well, like we had chilies. Oh, my goodness. We couldn't get rid of them fast enough. They were so hot. But just so a few vegetables. Now, you know, at the moment it's going through a little bit of hiatus in readiness for the next sort of <laughs> crop. But the thing is that he actually get joy, gets real joy out of tending that for the community and the community are appreciative. Even our immediate neighbours are appreciative because they're getting these fresh vegetables that are properly organically soil grown, you know, isolated from whatever we can. Um, obviously it's near a road and we'd love it out and, you know, hundred miles away from any road, but that's just not practical in our environment. But it's something about this calling, as you say, to our tribe. I think it's really important. I think every family should have some garden. And, and it calls to um, that word connection again. So when we can be connected to, um, you know, the season and to our own soil and to our own gardens and to our neighbours and to, to what we're putting in our body, it is, it's actually extremely empowering. So we've podcasted Sarah Lance on the Australian toxic foods and they appear to differ from other countries. 
So what is it? The the, um, the clean fifteen. The dirty dozen and dirty the clean dozen. fifteen. That's right. And they send. They tend to differ a little bit. So can you take us through what you learned in writing or, and researching for the book with regards to us versus other countries like the US? Well, absolutely. Well, you know, probably the most sophisticated protective policies, uh, you know, are within the EU. So obviously they ah. discussed the um, precautionary principle at length in sort of around 2000. And then in 2005, the REACH uh, regulation was implemented where uh, the onus was on industry uh, to make sure that any chemicals allowed into the market had been approved safe for both human consumption and also residues in food and also for the environment. You know, essentially a huge number of pesticides were withdrawn from the market and ah. in order to be able to be allowed back on, they had to um, meet a number of uh, different requirements. And that the implementation of that REACH um, regulation really highlights the differences between the EU policies and uh, and what we have here because there's a very reactive approach to um, chemical regulation in Australia. And when it comes to pesticides, because I deal mostly with food, Sarah is an absolute genius when it comes to policy on all other things. Right. And, and uh, I find some of her writing brilliant because she talks about trespass, intergenerational trespass of these chemicals into our bodies and then in, impacting the next generation. Yeah. Uh, but when it comes to pesticides, it's the AVPMA in Australia that regulates pesticides. And there are, you know, I'm sure most of your listeners are aware that the AVPMA is predominantly funded by the pesticide industry in the first instance, which certainly gives us a number of roadblocks. But, you know, even just in April this year, uh, chlorpyrifos, which is an insecticide that is, uh, uh, has endocrine disrupting uh, properties, uh, was reviewed again by the AVPMA. And the April 2017 Supplementary Toxicology Assessment Report, uh, you know, found no evidence to indicate potential neurodevelopment effects to occur at the doses of chlorpyrifos that are Used in used in that adequate um, exposure. Really, but it's yeah, supposed, to be, it's supposed to be cumulative, isn't it? The adequate daily intakes are, you know, it, 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 that raises questions in itself. You know, what is an adequate daily mm. intake? Because how we measure our chemicals and and the study of toxicology is really just looking at a single chemical uh, in an in an adult um, healthy you know, adult healthy adult physiology in isolation not taking into account, you know, the cocktails of exposures and the way that we all have individual variation as to how we handle these chemicals, whether it be, um, you know, with, with uh, vari variability in methylation and the production of our enzymes that break down some of these uh, pesticides. But chlorpyrifos actually only has a half-life of six to eight hours in our bodies. So this is not one of the chemicals that's really fat-soluble that does build up and, and, and uh, bioaccumulate in the tissue. It's something that... Uh, when we're exposed to large amounts of it and we're, we have impeded clearance of it at particular vulnerable windows of our development, it can have all sorts of um, derailing effects with our neurodevelopment and also with our endocrine system. Well, indeed, not necessarily blaming chlorpyrifos, but I remember a case decades ago now. This is before the, um, uh, the, the, the PPIs, the proton pump inhibitors. This is back in the old days of H2 antagonists. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, so I think it was, um, cimetidine. There was a guy who was using pesticides who was concurrently taking cimetidine. That has the trade name was Tagamet. Mm -hmm. And, um, he basically turned himself into an insect. 
um, for want of a better term. Um, so that is a little bit glib, but uh, in the end he died of testicular cancer or something, I think. During his life, though, he ended up with neuronal damage and all sorts of issues. And the judge, I remember, not only um, was he, did he successfully sue the um, pharmaceutical company because they knew about the issue, the SIPE interaction with the pesticides, not only was that an issue, but I think he was awarded one million extra dollars for um, basically a shove it in your face because you knew what it was about. So it wasn't just the mm. actual lawsuit, but it was like an extra million dollars because of your arrogance in not doing it. It was sort of that flavour. Forgive me the terminology. Um, so notwithstanding that that might be an issue of the days of old when we had very strong, you know, SIPE inhibitors and things like that, some of those are still available. Hmm. And there are just yeah. so many gaps in our knowledge. Mm. This is the thing. And when you're, when you're delving through the research, it, it is an area of research that is absolutely exploding. And, and I guess one of the other reasons that I haven't swayed from learning about it and, and doing as much as I can is because it's continually updating. You never have yeah. a day where you're bored. <laughs> well, look, even to the point of looking at, um, you know, copper logs, in mm. Australia, we call mm. them copper logs, you know, mm. and, and that's the, um, the uh, chromium copper arsenic, CCA. So uh, we're finding that building material is now going out. Mm. Now they're blue. So it's a different pest termicide. It's a different pesticide in there. Uh, we don't, do we know the long-term effects of this one? <laughs> I don't Absolutely know. Absolutely not. It reminds me of the of the BPA switching to yes. the BPA, the bisphenol S, and and that having really similar tox toxicology profile and um, not necessarily being a better option. Okay, so I have to ask, a, is it a devil's advocate? It's more of a teasing out question here. Mm -hmm. When we've got such an, uh, a chronic low-grade issue of thyroid problems in our, in our kids to the point where we're now supplementing with iodine and we all think, oh, therefore it's iodine that's the issue because we have iodine-deficient soils and that's one issue. Is that the only issue? Most definitely not. And you know, you know, it's not, Andrew. So essentially, there are so many different other halogens that can interfere with the uptake of iodine into the thyroid. And then there's also a huge amount of research on uh, perchlorate impacting one of the uh, sodium iodine channels uh, for thyroid, uh, for iodine into the thyroid. And this example of thyroid health is actually a fantastic example insofar as it's not just about avoidance. So when we talk about the solutions and how we can handle such an enormous, um, you know, conundrum, really, the chemicals dilemma, we could call it, mm -hmm. certainly avoidance and that sense of community and, and information sharing and opening the conversation with your friends and family is really important. But then also we have to be, be making sure that we're maximising resilience. So when we're looking at... Um, thyroid function in infancy, we don't just want to be making sure that we're, there's not too much fluoride coming in and there's not too, you know, too much byproducts from some of the disinfectants in our tap water, potentially looking at a filter on tap water, um, et cetera. Uh, no swallowing of toothpaste and, and careful with pesticides because of some of the uh, halogen um, residues in, in pesticide-laden foods. Mm -hmm. But it's also about maximising uh, resilience by making sure enough iodine is coming in and all of those other hormone-supportive um, building blocks are coming in so that children are getting enough zinc and that they're not selenium deficient as well and that they've, they've got enough protein in their diet and enough of the clean fats. So there's so much you can do to maximise resilience. And 
that really the concepts there are at the core of naturopathic philosophy in the first place. It's usually something the body's always trying to do its utmost to be its healthiest and to develop well, but it's usually something we're doing too much of or not quite enough of that throws us off track. We know that foods are obviously much more bioavailable to the human body rather than a supplement. What do you think the place of supplements is with regards to kids um, and particularly with regards to the current environment of these lollies? Um, supplements being promoted to kids. You mean like gummy vitamins and things like that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, um, you know, a lot of those on the market may be artificially coloured and sweetened. And I don't, I don't really see a huge place for multivitamins uh, for children. That's just the way that I practice. I think that developmentally um, uh, requirements uh, for children as they grow, they've got to be getting enough iron to satiate their um, blood volume that's expanding. Mm -hmm so rapidly. And that is something that I do see in clinic quite regularly. I see kids with empty iron stores, anemic children. I'd say three out of every five kids, maybe it's a biased uh, population that's coming to me because they're unwell, but three out of every five kids that I see is low in iron. And iron, again, is very relevant as a cofactor for a number of our detox uh, enzymes. I don't know the prevalence of iron deficiency anemia in the community. I've only heard of like women is like 12%, but they're menstruating. Well, you know, if we divert just for a moment, so, you know, kids uh, from the ages of one to three, both genders, have a recommended daily intake of 11 milligrams of iron. Now, if you have a look at a fully grown man or even your own son, Andrew, who's 18, uh, iron recommended daily intake of eight milligrams a day. And that is because, uh, you know, in the adult, they're fully grown, but the young children, every single day, their blood volume is expanding. And this is... um this is very lay terms, but really if an infant is iron store deficient or has iron deficiency anemia, they are more spongy and, and they the way that they tolerate their body burden, because there's no question about it. We all have a body burden of, um, of toxins, but really the concept of toxicity is how well we are handling that body burden. And if a child is really low with their iron and also is not getting enough iodine daily to protect their own thyroid, they are going to be at increased risk of um, detrimental outcomes. So how do you then address that? Particularly in kids, diet's so important. Bad dietary habits are so easily taken on board, particularly with our marketing. How do we get kids back? How do we do this? It's a perfect storm. So there's the industrialization of the food industry. There's the the quick 10 second grab, the convenience Mm. of everything. Parents are Overloaded. You know, when we look at some of the Australian Bureau of Statistics, um, you know, data on Australian spending, we spend something like $13 a week on fruits and vegetables per household and something like $32 a week on take home, uh, take out uh, food. And so it's a perfect storm. Mm. But how do, you know, how do we reach those families really I see myself as an educator and on teaching, how do you get enough fruit? How do you get enough vegetables? Which, how can you prioritise your organic dollar if you have an organic dollar within your grocery? That's a good term. 
Yeah, like how that. can you prioritize your organic dollar? The organic and dollar. and uh, you know, obviously, you know, newsletters, handouts, recipes. I've actually got a phytochemicals checklist that I use in my clinic. Yeah. So it's a rainbow essentially. And right. the kids can put their name at the top of the page and they can um tick every day of the week that they've eaten something red, pink, purple, green, orange, yellow, and tan. And they get a little reward at the end of the week, like an extra book or some more time with one of the parents or whatever. But yeah. um and then obviously we've got the book as a resource. We think this book should be in every school. We think it should be in uh, every women's health centre, in every library, in every clinic. And um, it, it really does just extend to that. I've I got to say, and you're calling for this book to be in every school, every clinic, is not through, through commercial gain. You, you guys put your heart into this. It's what you live, love and talk, walk and talk. Um, I've got to say, I, I want to see your kids. <laughs> they must be the most glowing sort of happy kids. Um, so talking about kids and their picky phases, and, you know, like we've been through this, particularly with our youngest, um, who is now just an incredible young man who cooks his own meal, grabs his own kale, cooks it on the barbecue, drizzling lemon over it, you know, blanching asparagus. He's just an amazing young man. But he has chosen to take charge of his own diet Um, and that's a powerful thing for him. And indeed, I have to tell you this, I introduced him to your book and I pointed towards it and I said to him, Liam, I've, I've never seen a publication like this. I've never seen anything like this. And he went, yeah, yeah. And I put it down. And the next morning he said, Dad, where's that book? <laughs> so he's That's now got that awesome. book. Yeah, we've stolen it. It's in his room. <laughs> I have to throw you another copy, Andrew. <laughs> That'd be good. But that's unreal. That's outstanding. But, okay, so he's now at that stage where he's taken charge. He's now a young man, nearly 18. But he w- he's been through his stage of, you know, the chocolate biscuits, the overdose of milk. I was actually worried about alkali disease at one stage. He was drinking so much milk. He's been through the sugar. He's been through all of those dietary indiscretion stages. How do you encourage patients to manage it without being worry warts, helicopter parents that will, um, you know, embed a paranoia about food in their kids? How do you take charge of this? The word that comes to mind again is connection. And and how I want to explain that is... I have my own little expression (laughs) called body talk Mm. and the way that I like to help children connect a particular food that might be on their plate that they might think, oh, gross, that's green or whatever. If we can connect how that food might uh, improve their performance in their chosen favourite sport or how it might help them concentrate a little bit better with their NAPLAN exam, NAPLAN today actually for my children. (laughs) So in there, you know, if you can help a child um, to feel connected to that food on their plate. It's not all about necessarily just the mouth feeling of it. And we know with fussy kids this term of food neophobia. So, uh, you know, I've got the 10 times rule at my house. If you don't like a food after the 10th time or the 11th time that I've served it, I'll, I'll go with that. Yeah. I'll, I'll take it for the time being. Mm. But essentially, if you can help the child to feel connected to food because that food because they've either been at the supermarket cut all the farmer's market with you in mm. choosing that, or if they're connected to it because they've got their rainbow chart and they're wanting to make sure that they tick every colour, so they'll put a piece of broccoli in their mouth because they haven't had any greens today, or they're inspired to try some purple carrot or some yellow carrot. 
um, because of the the colour chart. Really, if they can, you know, if they can be sent out to the garden or even to the windowsill to pick some parsley or some mint to yep. put in their dinner with their peas or, and their feta, etc. And uh, certainly, if you've got them up on the kitchen bench, you know, really we have this generation has potential to lose so many of the cooking skills and really just to be able to get back in the kitchen and to be responsible for the majority of your own meals, you know, your own breakfast before you leave the house, packing a lunch to take with you, making it as colourful as you can um, and leading by example as parents really. Yeah. i got to say, I'm so glad you mentioned that um, connection to their food. We've covered this in numerous topics, in numerous podcasts with various interviewees um, and Every single time it's got to do with this connection with the food. We've seen it on telly with the the cooks. And yet it's so important and it's not something, you don't need a farm. You know, you don't need to have the organic farm 300 k's away from your work. It can just be a herb garden on your bench, Mm -hmm. on your windowsill. It can be that small little, as you say, a calling to your tribe. Just that link. You know, you know where a potato is from. Absolutely. Some of Jamie Oliver's work in this area is just outstanding as well. Mm. So that sort of thing I think is so important. And I'm remembering when you were speaking just then about this Mm. sort of connection, I'm remembering when my wife and I um, took our kids down to my sister's place at Orange, Mm -hmm. outside Orange, and she has the best garden like the best. So we were raiding the berries, you know, I've seen asparagus, how it looks in the ground. Um, you know, that sort of, the, her corn is just beautiful. Like it's just glowing. So you think of this flea bitten sort of organic thing. No, that's not how it grows. <laughs> mm. Like Pam's stuff is just incredible. But I think the beauty of it is this connection. I guess I have to go another bit of a, a jump or leap. Maybe it's a leap back though. Mm. Let's say, because they live on a farm, they've had to deal with the reality of animals Mm -hmm. and eating them. And when we're talking about the toxic load, you've also got to talk about the toxic load that the animals intake throughout their lives. And then we talk about the lovely, because we don't want to talk about nasty things. We just want to talk about a grass-fed steak. Well, that steak was actually an animal. Hope I'm not turning people off. No, but it's the case. It's, it's how the world works. It is the real reality of it. So the fact of the matter is if we're talking about an organic steak that was fed something and it wasn't fed one day, it was fed throughout its lifetime, how particular are you? How particular do you have to get with sourcing these clean sources of meat? Well, when look, a lot of the... Um Uh, documentaries and things like that out there are American, okay? And I do think we're in a far stronger position when it comes to our um, livestock in Australia because we've got the space. Mm. But having said that, I used an expression before, which I use in clinic with my clients, which is prioritising your organic dollar. And I do think, you know, with budgets in mind as well, when we can prioritise our organic dollar on our animal products, what we are doing, you know, by organic eggs, organic grass-fed mints when we can. Yep organic chooks um, for the people that eat, uh, you know, like omnivores like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what we are doing is we are significantly reducing our um, exposures to some of those persistent pollutants that are fat-soluble, you know, really persistent pollutants. These are the ones that are banned from use now. They've been banned for decades, but they're still in the food chain because they're fat-soluble and they, they build up within the tissue of the animals, including the tissue of our farmed fish. 
sadly. Mm. And that is a whole nother podcast, <laughs> making a good yes. choice. On a marine, a marine fish who, that eats soy. Really? Mm. <laughs> mm. I know. It's, it's pretty devastating and, yeah. and leftovers from chicken industry mm. and things like that. So, yeah. um, but essentially when we are spending that little bit extra on our certified organic uh, animal produce, we can extend it. We can make it last for us. You know, I've got, I'm, I'm, where the rubber hits the road with my clients every day and I've got loads of recipes. And one of those recipes that goes out really commonly, especially to those young children that are low in iron and the women that are low in iron, is just a really simple bolognese recipe that gets turned into a shepherd's pie with a sweet potato mash. And the bolognese is just 500 grams of organic grass-fed mince, but it has been extended with loads of lentils and broccoli and, you know, parsley and basil from your own garden if you can, and even frozen peas, carrot, zucchini, and that way you're getting sort of eight meals out of, you know, what was initially expensive grass-fed organic beef. But at the same time, all of the phytochemicals that are in those vegetables and that are in those um, herbs and spices that you might be using are, are synergistically working together to protect your DNA from mm. any um, chemical exposures via your meals. You've just said a key point, one which I omitted b- before, and that was the inclusion of large amounts of plant food. The mm. the obvious picture in people's mind is there's your meat and over there is your salad or your, your vegetables. It doesn't have to be that way. You know, one of my favourite meals that my wife cooks up... Bless her. Bless her. Bless you, Lee. Um, Is um, this chicken with um, lentils. Oh, my God. And talking about vegetables. So what we do is with the the recipe, it says for a certain portion of lentils, we double that. Yeah. And the amount that that uh, of phytochemicals, of fibre that we're getting now in that meal has just doubled. So it doesn't have to be this separate thing. You can include it in these diets, these bolognese's, these practical meals. Absolutely. So it's just about how much plant food can you get in in a day. Mm. So, okay, navigating through this maze, Mm. um, you talk about four pillars in your book. Mm. What are they? Well, the solutions. So this is the this is the final chapter, and this is where it all comes together. Yeah. And uh, solution one, we've spent a bit of time on today. So it's about awareness. It's about opening that conversation. It's about educating and avoiding, because really, the most ethical and the, and the cheapest thing to do, really, because we don't really adopt the precautionary principle here, which is the look before you leap, and let's just err on the side of caution. The most um, ethical and the most cost-effective preventative tool is avoidance. So pillar one is education, awareness and avoidance. Pillar two is about supporting our most vulnerable. And really, when we look to the literature, the windows of vulnerability are in that first trimester of pregnancy, uh, all throughout gestation, uh, as a young infant. And then there's uh, more research that's uh, been published recently from uh, New York Uni. I can probably find that paper for you too, mm-hmm. which is the vulnerability of uh, teens. So kids oh. from sort of 12 through to, to late teens yep. um, uh, with their exposures to endocrine disrupting chemicals. So it's not just the high load of things like phthalates that they may be exposing to themselves as they start to explore personal care products, uh, but also um, perchlorate, which is in water, and in the food chain and residues on food uh, and the way that that impacts developmental thyroid function at, in the teen years. So it's supporting our most vulnerable and really, again, this is very naturopathic, but we're looking at your preconception care. Yep. We're looking at making sure that there's an abundance of minerals coming in, an abundance of phytochemicals coming in again to work to protect the cells from um, the oxidation that occurs, the mitochondrial damage with exposures. 
And pillar three, we've got the strategies to support all of the body's innate detoxification mechanisms. So really for detoxification to be effective and we, we, you know, we all have our unique, you know, we respond uniquely to our environmental exposures and also our our nutrient absorption and things like that. But so many ducks have to be lined up for, for detox to be working effectively. So whatever we can do to open the channels of elimination whether that be asking your kids to have a glass of water on waking just to flush their kidneys and making sure, you know, bartering with them to make sure they finish their water bottle by the end of the day, their steel water bottle, mind you. Um, also making sure there's plenty of plant food fibre coming in, maybe the use of, um, of a probiotic and doing what we can, again, via our diet and the decisions that we make to nourish our microbiome because of the microbiome's role in detoxification and, uh, and supporting the liver. So with regards to the microbiota, um, you know, we keep on thinking about foods for the microbiota, like, for instance, um, prebiotics and fermented foods. And we, you know, as natural healthcare practitioners, we bang on about these things that you give by mouth. Mm. However, there's new data out that says that an effective way to modulate your microbiota, at least to some degree, is actually physically physical exercise. And then mm. there's sleep. Mm. So these things that we just, we put over there, we don't, attribute to having an important impact on our microbiota, sleep and exercise. How then do you start to negotiate that one with regards to kids, given that we've got this convenience mentality in our culture? Mm, Well, look, I'm a practical girl, Andrew, and right from a very young age with my own children and again with the clients that I see in clinic, I use uh, something termed nature's seven doctors Mm -hmm. and it does put, you know, and I'm saying this with my clinical nutrition hat on, it does put nutrition in its place because it's only just one of nature's seven doctors. So we talk about access to fresh air, clean water, um, sunshine every day, the whole foods, uh, feeling socially connected to your, to your community, like we've been talking about today, um, Sleep, sleep and adequate rest. And then I think I'm up to seven, moving your body in a way that inspires you, exercising. Mm, You know, these mm. are all really critical components of living well. And living well is a lifestyle. It's not just about what you eat and what you put in your body. I love the way that you said moving your body in a way that inspires you. Mm. I'm just giving a call out to both of my sons here. I don't care about what you think about my dancing. (laughs) Exactly. It could be martial arts, yoga. You know, we all, when you take time to check in with your body each day, and this is something, again, I try to teach all of my clients and we talk about in the book, when you take a little moment each day to check in with your body, your body talks to you. And it lets you know how it's going. And it lets you know if that, you know, 5am really high intensity um, gym class this morning with some person yelling at you really worked for you or if it didn't. And, uh, you know, any way that inspires you a nature walk, you know, green space exercise, Mm. we know the impact that that has on mental health. A final word, our internal ecosystem versus our external ecosystem. What are we talking about here? Well, you know, I was at your research symposium recently in April and it was just so magic to hear um, Christopher Shade speak. I am a huge fan of his. And there were a number of things that he talked about as blocks to effective detoxification. And when we talk about our internal environment, you know, certainly being in fight or flight and being sympathetically dominant is a major block to both cellular and whole body detoxification. So is uh, gut permeability and uh, leaky gut junction 
So is dysbiosis, um, uh, you know, not being well rested enough, not emptying our bowels well enough, but or not having those elimination channels open really. But when we talk about our internal ecosystem, we are so intricately connected to the external ecosystem as well. And I don't think we see that any clearer than in the case of pregnancy. Mm. I've got to say as a last sort of wrap up, you know, just looking at your book, I'm so inspired by this. I'm I was so appreciative of the work that you guys have put into this, you and Sarah, because I've, I've never seen anything so professionally produced before. It is seriously something that should be on your coffee table for every visitor to, pull up, to pick up and glance through and then go, wow. Um, so I've got to say, you know, hats off. Well done to you guys on this. Thank you. There, you know, it was a five-year project, Andrew, so we had the time to think about it and it morphed and it evolved and originally we thought it would just be a black and white book and we weren't sure. Yeah, we, no. yeah <laughs> we got to a point where we wanted it to be beautiful. We wanted it to call to people. We, we actually chose a cover that was moderately confronting and we went through all of the processes and all of the expenses, to be honest, of having it printed on forestry stewardship approved paper soy-based ink, no petroleum. And, uh, you know, we we wanted the way that we produced the book to be aligned with the contents of the book. And really it it is a gift to our fellow clinicians and we are just one of the voices speaking to this really important topic and we take our hats off really to everyone else that's working and researching in the field and, you know, whether that is the farmers or the clinicians uh, or the or the researchers and the academics and, you know, there's some work that Nicole Bilsman is doing at the moment yes. on chemical assessment and the paper she published last year with Mark Cohen was just excellent and it really was an acknowledgement to the clinicians out there that are extending their consulting work into this area because we can't really just work with nutrition and and herbs and lifestyle alone without taking into account the um, ever-increasing impact of our environment, not just on our day-to-day health but on our, on our reproductive timeline and on the health of the planet and on the health of our future generation. So I would urge all of our listeners out there to arm yourselves with this book. It really is an armament. One bite at a time, reduce toxic exposure and eat the world you want. By Sarah, Dr. Sarah Lance and Tabitha McIntosh. Tabitha, thank you so much for joining us on FX Medicine and taking through the beauty of this book, but also the issues confronting all of our populations in every country, but I guess especially Australia, because that's where we are right now. Such a pleasure speaking with you, Andrew. Thanks for having me. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Don't forget to visit fxmedicine.com.au for today's show notes, extra research and other resources. Hi, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. At FX Medicine, we strive to be clinically relevant for you. So please get in touch with us if there's a topic you'd like us to explore or a specific expert you'd like us to interview. You can email info at fxmedicine.com.au or contact us via Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.